All right, if y'all will turn with me to the book of 1 John, chapter 5, and we'll be closing out this wonderful book of great teaching, great instruction to the believer's life as we have experienced and as we've seen, we'll continue today. We'll be moving uh, through the rest of the epistles of John. We'll be going to Second John uh, next Sunday and then spend maybe a couple of Sundays there, two or three, and then we'll go into the book of uh, Third John. So as we close this chapter, as we close this book, uh, let us look at verse 18. I know Wes covered this one last week, but we're just going to bring it back in so we have the context of where we are today. And let's read it together, 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who, has, who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Well, as I mentioned, I wanted to bring in verse 18 that we did go over last week uh, just to put into the remaining verses in our closeout of 1 John because I think it's better to get our focus back as we frame the context. And as Wes highlighted last week, and he's probably better at doing this than I am, is reminding us that we need to be like the noble-minded Bereans that we see the example that they give us in Acts chapter 17 where they didn't just trust what man was telling them, but they went to the Scriptures to prove the things that they were hearing were actually so. And even trusted men like Paul and Silas, the the biblical scholars of their day, uh, rather than just taking their word, they went to the scriptures to prove the things that they were telling them were actually from the scriptures. And we want to encourage you to do that today because as we learned last week, as Wes taught us, because with certain passages there can be some Uh, difficulties with the translation and our understanding of those passages. And yes, a lot of times the context, as we uh, teach over and over again, you know, put things into context, um, that helps the, the picture develop a little bit more for us. But sometimes the translations are not always in agreement. And so when we study text, we try to be diligent not only to have the several translations available, I think we had four that uh, Wes took us through last week of just that one particular passage, but it is also good to go back to the Greek manuscripts. And I know for myself, and I know Ray and Wes as well, those who'd be teaching from this pulpit, we're always doing, trying to be faithful to go back and to uh, get the, the full meaning of the text when we present it here as a teaching. And it's something that we acknowledge in our statement of faith for our church, and it's this, that we believe the Bible to be God-breathed in its original manuscripts and is the only inspired infallible, authoritative Word of God. The Bible made up of both the Old and New Testament, 66 books, are the Word of God, fully inspired, without error in the original manuscripts, and are the infallible rule of faith and practice. And we put this first in our statement of faith because the Bible is our guide and it governs everything that we believe as a church. And so I want to encourage all of us here to be students 
of the word. Whether you are called to teach or serve in a non-teaching type of ministry, we are all responsible for being students of God's word to learn more about him, to learn more about who he is, what he has done for us, and how he can change the human condition, that condition of sin, and what he desires of us. So let's go back now. We'll start at verse 19. And we see that we have these three declarative we knows. And it begins in verse 18 that we covered last week. And found at the end of this epistle, almost like the closing statements of 1 John. And in verse 18 that Wes covered last week, there it was we know whosoever is born of God does not practice sin. That's the summary of that particular verse. The second one that we're covering today is we know that we are of God. It's in verse 19. And then finally, the third we know is that the Son of God has come to give us understanding. So just something that we want to keep in focus as we book in this letter. And now back to our text today, and I'm going to read it again, beginning in verse 19 this time and going through verse 21, and then we'll unpack it together. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. There has been one clear division line that has been drawn by John throughout this entire epistle. There are the things that are of or the things that are from God, and then there are the things that are not. And John has given us many opportunities as we've walked through this book together, this letter, to evaluate ourselves against the truth of Scripture, to see whether or not we truly are from God. And it is important to know which side of this line that you are standing on. How do you know that you are a child of God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is God that has come in the flesh? Do you see the fruit of righteousness being produced within you? Are you loving God first and foremost and thereby showing that love for others and how you minister to the body of believers called the church? Are we abiding in Him and practicing righteousness? And that is the mark that defines our life. And it is only by God's grace that we who profess Christ as Savior and Lord can say that we are of God. And I hope that we don't take that statement with the sense of superiority, but with the sense of just this overwhelming gratitude towards God and towards our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I hope that we are intentional and make it a practice of being grateful to God and Him for giving us that provision a means by which we can come into a saving relationship with him that is the position that we are in and how grateful that we should be for it that we are of God and because of that we will or we should find ourselves uncomfortable with many of the things that we find in this world many of the things that the world is promoting today and it has been promoting ever since sin entered into the world this doctrinal truth of being from God, it is comforting, right? We should have that gratitude, but being from Him means that the things that we believe and practice are going to run counter to the things of the world. And we see that very evident in Scripture, and that's what we see today. And it is true that we exist in this world, but we know that we are not to be part of this world. We are not to take part in the sinful practices of this world. In John chapter 15, verse 19, 
first reference verse this morning as we look at this. Verse 15, or chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We are also told in 1 Peter that we are to be like sojourners or exiles in this world. I think the King James Version uses the term that we are aliens as we exist in this world as believers in God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So these practices of righteousness in a believer's life as we separate ourselves from the things of this world is going to come up against the things of this world. It's going to meet them head on and it's going to grate with the things that are of the world and the things that are behind the influence of the enemy and that is Satan. And we see in stark contrast to those who are from God, who are defined from God in this book of 1 John, in stark contrast to that, we have the world. The world or the evil system that is under the power of the evil one. And the evil one we know to be Satan. And those who are not from God are those that are following him, whether they really live with that knowledge or unbeknownst to them, they just fall into that category because they are not children of God. Remember, it is a very distinct line that John draws for us, a child of God or a child of Satan. And when we see the use of the word, the word world in here, we are to understand it as this evil system that is, comes under the, the governance of the enemy of our souls. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, we've already looked at this warning in quite a bit of detail. There in verse 15 of the second chapter of this letter, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the life, the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's just look at that Greek word for world as it's translated. The Greek word is cosmos, and it can be used to describe the universe as a whole. It can be used to describe our planet. It can be used to describe mankind in the general sense, like in John 3.16, where we see, For God so loved the world. Uh, But here we're looking at a bit of a different translation, and we're not going to look at all the other ways that cosmos is used in scriptures, but the word can also be used to describe fallen humanity. Fallen humanity. In John chapter 17, this is Jesus praying unto the Father, and there in verse 9, the use of cosmos there is to describe fallen humanity. Verse 9 of chapter 17 of John, I am praying for them. This is Jesus praying. I am not praying for the world, the cosmos, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus making the clear separation about not praying for the things of the world, the, the evil that is behind the world system, but rather he's pay, praying for those whom God has called out unto himself as believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians. 
And in 1 John, it's used similarly here in that it refers to the evil world system over which Satan presides as the governing force over fallen humanity. And we also go to Ephesians 6 because we get there the imagery of this battle that is being waged for our souls. And it is not a material battle where we can actually reach out and touch it in that sense. Before Paul goes in describing the full armor of God that we are to stand firm in, he describes the type of battle that we are engaged in. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when we look at the world in this context of 1 John, in the second half of verse 19 in particular, what we're looking at this morning, where he says, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, this is that invisible world system that is corrupted and it is evil, and it is full of lies and deceit, and it has as its father the enemy of our souls, Satan. And the manifestations of this invisible force can certainly be seen in our society. We see it all around us. We see it well up within a fallen mankind. And we even see ourselves fighting against the temptations of this world. We can see it in various aspects of media. Uh, We see it in entertainment. We see it in music, we see it in the education systems, we see it in politics, and we, it just the list goes on and on. And I'm not saying that it is all evil, but there is this infrastructure of a system that is very much anti-Christian. And that is what we, as those who are from him, come up against. And it is this evil system that stands in opposition to those who are from God, and that is why Paul will continue in that passage of Ephesians 6 with stand firm then, stand firm in God's truth, stand firm in the armor of God that he gives us because we have as our enemy Satan and the forces of evil behind him, which are the things of the world. And the third and final we know statement that John makes is found in verse 20. So coming back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Now we are given the certainty by John that the Son of God has come where he says we know that the Son of God has come. For us as believers, we know that He has come into this world, and that is huge. John is writing to many who are former Judaizers who profess now Jesus as their Messiah. And as a result, many of them had been banished from their families. They had been ostracized from the synagogues. They had faced ridicule, and they first faced persecution, and even in danger of losing their lives. And many had already been martyred by this time for the cause of Christ and sharing and advancing the gospel. And what may seem like a simple declaration for us came at a great cost to them. And that is what really leaving the world behind them looked like. And it makes me wonder and also feel convicted, does, this, does it look like this for me? To claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come in the flesh. And 
Sadly, there are many who still practice Judaism today who believe in a Messiah of the Old Testament that is to come, but not in Jesus Christ who has already come as Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. They are still living with this expectation that he will come, but sadly they missed when he did come. They missed their Messiah Because the verb that John uses here for come indicates a present tense in that Jesus has come, but also in the sense that he is still present. He is present in his people. And for those of us who profess Christianity and Jesus Christ has come, anchor their faith in this truth that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And it is by this knowing that He is the Son of God who has come in the flesh that we are then thereby given understanding. Understanding of who God is. Understanding of God's nature and His desire for us. That understanding only comes from being His by the presence of his indwelling Holy Spirit. And for the believer, there's this supernatural union with the Father and with the Son by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the three-in-one Godhead of the Trinity that is indwelling us. And it's something that is just almost mind-boggling to behold, and it is awesome to experience that as a believer. We see in Scripture that there's the perfect knowing between God the Father and God the Son. And no one better at providing us with an understanding of God himself than Jesus Christ, who indwells us. In Luke chapter 10, verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So there's this perfect revealing of the Father, of the Son, and the Son of the Father. And there is somewhat of an underpinning to what we are finding here in John chapter 20, 1 John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding because the Son within us gives us understanding of the Father because who knows the Father except the Son and who the Father except and who the Father except the Son, anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. In John chapter one, verse eighteen, the Gospel of John one eighteen, and I've chosen the NASB translation of this, this verse. Typically I read from ESV, but John one eighteen says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And the Greek word used for explaining is where we get the term exegesis. And that means to draw something out in narrative form, to draw from truth and explain it. That is what Christ has done with the Father to us. And the Bible teaches that the only way to know or to understand the true and living God is through Jesus Christ. And no one can be saved who does not believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, for there is no salvation apart from Him. And the second half of verse 20 provides the purpose of our understanding Him, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Did you count the use of the word true? And that is threefold, right? You see it three times 
repeated in that verse. And they're all the same Greek word. So there's not a different Greek word behind these statements of, or these words true, but they are all the word alathinos. And it literally means to unhide something or to hide nothing, to fully disclose it. It conveys the thought that truth is always there, always open and available for all to see with nothing being hidden or obscured. And the Hebrew word for truth is emeth, and that means a firmness or a constancy or a duration. So when you combine the Greek meaning and the Hebrew meaning of these words, their definitions, it implies that everlasting substance and something that can be relied upon and something that is known to the believer because Christ has made it known to us by his indwelling. That is how we understand God and the things of him. The threefold truth that we may know him who is true, that we are in him who is true, and that he is true. And we don't want to miss what John is saying here. This is especially important for those who may make the claim that, sure, I'll, I'll say that Jesus is the Son of God, but that he is maybe one of many emanations of God. Or maybe he is a, just a separate being altogether and not God himself. But John affirms with this text that we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. Then he says he, and who is he referring to? He's referring to Jesus Christ. He says he is the true God and eternal life. And we can't miss that. That is a theological truth that our faith is grounded in. John wants the believer to be saturated with this truth. We look to Jesus, the one who saves us, the one who is the author, the perfecter of our faith. By faith we know him to be true, and in salvation we are placed in him who is true. Almost like being marinated in his truth. You know, I don't know if you've ever prepared something to put out on your grill, and, and not only do you cover it over, but you also inject it with that marinade because you want it to saturate it. We are to understand ourselves as being saturated in this truth when we are found in Christ. Again, coming back to the Gospel of John and Jesus' prayer to the Father in chapter 17, verses 16 through 17, Jesus' prayer for us, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And the way in which we are being kept from being influenced and taken over by this world is to be in his truth, which is his word, which is Jesus Christ. And the declaration of truth you know, rings out throughout Scripture, but probably the loudest, I think, is here in 1 John. And if we're studying any other book, I'll probably come back and say, no, it rings louder here. I mean, it's, just, it's throughout Scripture. And I must admit that I find myself getting caught up in the latest news stories, you know, the chaos and confusion going on in our world today, and I grow frustrated over it. And I know that many of you probably do too, feeling like I am powerless to do anything about it. What can we do about it? And that is to continue to speak God's truth into a lost and dying world. We proclaim it boldly, we proclaim it unapologetically, we're not called to stand on our political soapbox and make Christianity align with our politics. We take our worldly ideologies, we align them with the truth of God's word. And we can be deceived to think that the things are truth when they're not. And sometimes the best way to understand truth is to know what truth is not. 
Now, I was doing some research and study on this passage of Scripture. Um, I saw this list appear in a website called gotquestions.org. I sometimes go there, but I thought it had an interesting list of the things that we sometimes think are truth but actually are not truth. So understand, I'm going to read this list for you. It's not Scripture. (laughs) Okay, so understand that. This is just a list that someone has come up with, but I think it's a good comparison of what truth is about what truth is not. So here it goes. Truth is not simply whatever works. This is the philosophy of pragmatism, an ends versus means type approach. In reality, lies can appear to work, but they are still lies and not the truth. Truth is not simply what is coherent or understandable. A group of people can get together and form a conspiracy based on a set of falsehoods where they all agree to tell the same false story, but it does not make that, that presentation true. Truth is not what makes people feel good. Unfortunately, bad news can be true. Truth is not what the majority says is true. 51% of a group can reach a wrong conclusion. Truth is not what is comprehensive. A lengthy, detailed presentation can still result in a false conclusion. Truth is not defined by what is intended. Good intentions can still be wrong. Truth is not how we know. Truth is what we know. Truth is not simply what is believed. A lie believed is still a lie. Truth is not what is publicly proved. A truth can be privately known. For example, the location of a buried treasure. So the reason why Carlsbad Bible Church places so much emphasis on the teaching of God's Word and doing it in a systematic way is because we take seriously the self-declarations that Scripture makes about itself as being the authoritative Word of God. And we know that God does not lie, and it is not in God's nature to lie. He cannot tell a lie, and therefore we can trust His Word as authoritative. We can trust it as all-sufficient source of truth in our lives in a world of so-called truths that is constantly changing on us. We find peace in knowing that there is truth that is unchanging and a source of truth that we can anchor ourselves to in an ever-changing, lost, and morally decaying world. And at the close of John's letter, we have this short admonishment that many think is misplaced or just kind of random, but it is not. My children can probably tell you as we're saying our goodbyes, you know, usually just throw out things, you know, take care, or if they're traveling, you know, be careful, just little random things that we might tag on to the end. That's not what John is doing here when he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I think to help us understand that, uh, let's look at what the greatest commandment is to us. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through I'll just go back up to verse 34 for context's sake. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So this greatest and first commandment is obedience to God And from that, 
the other commandments are able to be obeyed. The commandment that comes after that, to love others as ourselves, can only be found if we are loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And if you take that and compare it to idolatry, idolatry is loving something else more than God. It is being disobedient to this first and foremost commandment for the believer. When Moses went up to the mountain to receive the commandments from God, remember back there, and the people got tired of waiting, and so they convinced Aaron to make them an idol because they wanted a substitute God. And we tend to come down pretty hard on those Israelites, right? Sometimes thinking, how could they? You know, they had the presence of God with them. They knew where Moses was going. He was going to be in the presence of God, that they were at all, at how, you know, Moses glowed with the presence of God, and here he saw this idol that they had erected because they got tired of waiting, and so they just wanted something, a, a carven image that they could worship. And like I say, we, we come down on them hard, but fail to consider all the false, false idols that we may have erected in our own hearts, in our own lives. And that is loving a thing, or loving someone, and that includes ourselves. I think there's a Greek god called Narcissus, right? That's where we get the term narcissism. And that was his form of worship, his objectifying himself and worshiping himself, and we're guilty of doing that. We could worship a sport. You know, we see that a lot today. Or we could worship an ideology, a political belief more than we do God. And think on what you get the most excited about or the most emotional about. Think about what it is that you spend your money on or think of what you save your money for. See, the world will try to convince you that God just wants to suck all the fun out of your life, but in reality, God gives us the capacity to enjoy the things that he has made and the way in which he had made them. Enjoy them in the way in which he designed them to be enjoyed. And we see that for us, the, that life is so full of his, his blessings. And the greatest are the immaterial blessings that he has given us. You know, I think about the blessing of loving others and having others love me in return. I mean, that is church community. That is what we're supposed to be about. That's what First John has been a lot about. Loving God, loving others, and seeing others love and minister into our lives. We also have the blessing of his peace that Scripture tells us overcomes all circumstances if it truly is the peace of God. We see his joy, which can be had in the most difficult of times, that even in the midst of sorrow, his joy can rise up and overcome. But imagine your heart is a throne room upon which whatever sits is that that you elevate the most in your life, that that is most important to you. That is your God. What is important to you? John's heartfelt concern for these little children is that they keep themselves from these secondary idols, the little substitute gods that demand our attention. I'm thankful I don't have my phone up here so that you could see my, my little idol you know, up here, but truly, I mean, that can be a God for many of us. I mean, look how much time that we spend on our electronic devices, and I'm going to go off on a soapbox there, so I'll just stop it, cut it off right there. But John's heartfelt concern is, and the reason why he first him as little children, is he understood the temptation to be drawn away by these things, those little substitute gods, how easily we can be drawn to them, and I stand here also admitting that I am challenged by this as well. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, recognizes this in his prayer. And again, recognize this is not scripture. At the end of one of his chapters, uh, I think it was called The Pursuit of Things, 
um, he says this prayer. Father, I want to know thee, but my cowardly heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that they, thou mayest enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shalt thou make the place of thy feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it. For thyself wilt be the light of it, and there shall be no night there. And maybe, you know, we say a lot, be Bereans, because we want you to go to the scriptures to prove the things that you're hearing are so, but maybe we also need to be like a Gideon. And in Judges chapter 6, verses 25 through 27, Gideon, there, he demolishes the altar of Baal, and he chopped down the Asherah pole. And I believe the imagery there is what we are to do in our own hearts, to rid our lives of these idols. We must tear from our hearts anything that lessens our devotion to, our reverence to God. As Gideon built an altar to the Lord to replace the idolatrous images, we must dedicate ourselves as living sacrifices to God and that we put him first. In Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And the call of all Scripture is to put God first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And when we do, we should be standing out from the rest of the world. Jesus describes it as taking up our cross and following him daily in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And I've heard it said that we are to give him of our first fruits and not the leftovers. The Christian life described in Scripture is demonstrated in a moment-by-moment selflessness, selfless service to God that flows from a love for him and his people. In all things, we should be trusting, obeying, and loving God above all else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth to us, God. It is a thing that we desire to anchor ourselves to in a world that is constantly changing, constantly throwing out falsehoods and lies, and we know who it belongs to, God, but we know we are not to be of this world. You have called us out in salvation to be your children, and it is a glorious and an awesome thing to declare that we are from you, and what that cost you, Lord, by giving of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be found in him, as Paul would say, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Thank you for that grace and mercy that you have given to us through his redeeming sacrifice upon the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. And let that be the degree of grace and mercy that we are willing to give and extend to others, Lord, because you have given us so greatly of yourself. Father, I pray that we displace anything in the throne room of our hearts that has been there, that has occupied a place where it doesn't belong. God, we want to put you there. We want to trust in you fully. God, it's a daily process. Help us to continually find ourselves in your word, to find ourselves in prayer. God, to give you all the glory for everything that you have done in our lives. And ask that we also are just propelled to go out and to share the gospel with a world that is lost, that is dying that is subject to the moral decay that, that entered in upon the fall of man. But Lord, we are called to be your children and we're to look different than this world and help that to be recognized in our lives as the people from the outside look in. May they see something different in us. May they see a people who are saved, who are redeemed, and Lord, who love you and just want to love and serve you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.